I want to start this morning by posing a question to everyone here. And it's a question I want you to keep in the back of your minds as we go through looking at this passage. And the question is a simple one. What is it that you fear? What sort of things conspire in your mind sometimes make you doubt the promises of God? Every single day I meet people, meet young people who have deep fears um, of all sorts of different natures, most of them to do with inadequacy. Some of the students at school fear that they won't get into their first choice university and they're currently going through the turmoils of the UCAS process at the minute. Others fear that they haven't been good enough as children and they blame themselves for the breakup of their parents' marriage and think it's something to do with what they've done. And a very common fear, particularly among some of the older students, is the fact that they feel they're not attractive enough and they very quickly end up in easy and casual sexual relationships hoping to find some sort of acceptance. Fear is something that affects us all. And it's actually very easy for fear and the feeling of inadequacy to manifest itself in the, itself in the Christian church as well. It's very easy for each one of us as Christians to feel that we fall short and to feel that we're inadequate particularly when we compare ourselves to others. We might ask ourselves, you know, can I possibly have the faith of people like George Muller, like Hudson Taylor, like John Wesley? Can I ever match up to Moses, to David, to Abraham, to other biblical figures? And in fact, often, I think, whilst these stories can be very encouraging, such stories of triumph can actually be in some ways quite unhelpful because they make us feel as if we can never match up to such people of seemingly unwavering faith, such spiritual giants of God. Well, the good news is that each one of those individuals, from the biblical characters to the other people of the more modern age, all had their own struggles. And they struggled with exactly the same things that many of us struggle with. And I hope what we can do today is to look beyond the person, look beyond the people, and instead look at what God is doing in people's lives and find encouragement from that rather than find encouragement from comparing ourselves to others. If you're new with us here this morning, um, we've been studying um, Abram's life over the last few um, sermons and we've been looking at particularly the promises that God gave to Abram. The three promises that were given. First of all, that God would bless all people through Abram. Second, that God would promise to give him numerous descendants. And lastly, that God would provide a land for his people. And today we're going to focus on a passage, and it's a passage actually that I found incredibly um, encouraging as I've studied it and prepared for this sermon. And it's a passage that we'll see later on, contains one of the most profound and one of the greatest statements in the Old Testament. A statement that actually lays the foundations for much of the teaching in the New Testament. It's a passage that shows us the frailty of somebody who, who, who forgets to trust God and, and, and enters into doubts. But a passage also that shows the outstanding and astounding way God transforms people's lives through an abundant outpouring of his grace. We'll be looking at the whole of chapter 15 this morning. And just to set it in context, chapter 15 is a vision. It's a vision that takes place over a long period, perhaps over 24 um, hours, because the vision starts in the night, we hear. It carries on throughout the next day and right into sunset of the next day and into the next night again. And in this vision, an exchange takes place between Abram and between God, where Abram brings his doubts before God and then God reassures him. 
And I want to deal with the passage in two ways. I want us first of all to look at the doubts that Abram had and to identify in ourselves how we sometimes have those doubts and then to look at God's response and how God dealt with each one of those doubts. Now we learn in verse 1 of chapter 15 that Abram was afraid. Abram had doubts, Abram had fears similar to what we have. And I've picked up from this passage four key things why Abram was afraid. Now the first thing, the first reason he was afraid was because he was in fear of his life. He was afraid of the danger. We haven't had a chance in this sermon series to look at chapter 14. I do encourage you when you get home to have a look at it. And particularly for the house groups, the questions are over there on the side for those who follow the, the sermon. Please do look at chapter 14 before you come to your house groups. Because it gives a story which sets in context why Abram was afraid, why God was needing to reassure him. In chapter 14, an alliance of four kings attack the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they take away all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and they take away all the people, including Lot. A man who we studied last week made the rather unwise choice of deciding to settle in the grassy, green, fertile plains near Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, word eventually reaches um, Abram in chapter 14 that his nephew has been kidnapped and Abram sets off, he gets 300 of his men and he sets off and pursues these strong alliance of kings and he manages with just a handful of men to overcome them, to destroy them and to publicly humiliate the kings. Now, dictators do not take such treatment lightly and perhaps Abram was in fear for his life that there would be some reprisals from these kings that he'd attacked. The second reason um, that Abram was afraid is something that some commentators have commented on comes also from chapter 14. And this was perhaps that Abram felt that he'd made the wrong choices. In chapter 14, after uh, Abram has overthrown the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, he takes all the people back, he takes all the possessions that were captured, and he brings them back towards where he was living, including Lot, his nephew, who he manages to rescue. But in honour of God, Abram decides, despite the fact that there's all this loot and all this booty that he's now been able to get, he decides not to keep it for himself, but to give it away. A tenth of it we read in, in, in chapter 14, he gives to Melchizedek, the king of Salem and, and priest of God Most High. But the rest of it, despite being offered it on a plate by the king of Sodom, he returns it back to the king of Sodom and says, you take it, I don't want it. For in verse 23 we read, I will accept nothing belonging to you, he says to the king of Sodom, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Abram wanted to be made rich only through God's blessings, not through the giving of the king of Sodom. And who knows, perhaps now back in the stark um, uh, quietness and the bleakness of his tent, where he probably wasn't surrounded by too many riches at this stage, he might have begun to wonder if he had made the right decision. Now some of these might not be fears that, that hit us, but loneliness is something that has come to us all at different stages in our lives. And this is perhaps the third reason why Abram was fearful or why Abram was doubting. Deep down, lurking in the depths of Abram's heart, there's annoying fear that perhaps he had understood what God's promises actually were. 
You see, it's been ten years now since God has said to him, Abram, I'm going to give you a son, and his descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth, and you'll become a father of many nations. Well, ten years had passed, and as we read in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's clear to note one thing here. It wasn't that Abram doubted that God was actually going to provide him with descendants. He just couldn't see with his wife Sarah being, being barren and with, with, with no promise being fulfilled how this might happen. So he began to ask God if the descendants would come from another source. In verse 2 and 3 of chapter 15, we read that, that Abram asked God if in fact the descendants would come through Eliezer of Damascus, his servant. It's likely that as Abram was, was passing through from Haran, past the fertile plains of Damascus, that Eliezer's family would have become part of Abram's household. And we know from studies of ancient law that in times past, when people had no children of their own, they'd often adopt a son to become their servant and then to inherit um, their wealth. Abram wondered, would the descendants come through his adopted son, would God actually provide him with an heir? And lastly, what about something that so many of us have felt at some times in the past? The idea of impatience. That we're so impatient to see God fulfill the promises in his life that he's given to us. Perhaps it's the last fear that Abram was struggling with. The fear that he didn't know when the land would be given to him. He might have begun to worry about the promise that he was given of the land. And he might begin to wonder whether he'd ever be able to take it. As he says in verse 8, O Lord, how do I know I will gain possession of the land? So four clear things why Abram might have been afraid in this passage. And I wonder how many of these apply to our own lives. To what degree we allow fears like these to overtake us and to make us impotent. Do we fear enemies and what they might do to us? Do we fear that perhaps we've made the wrong decisions in actually following God or honouring God with our lives? Do we fail to try and understand that God's promises will work themselves out and actually try to fulfil them in our own ways? And finally, are we impatient? Are we too impatient to wait for God in his own timing to fulfil those promises? Well, they are very common human responses and I'm sure every one of us, myself included, has had to struggle with these issues at some point in our past. But there is a danger. There is a danger when we allow fear just to build in our lives that we come, as one commentator has put it, spiritual hypochondriacs. We're always worrying that God will never fulfill his promises. And for many people in this case, the idea is just to shut out God perhaps in extremes as well, to reach for the aspirin bottle and to just go to sleep and to try and forget about them all. Well, I'm not sure what the equivalent of aspirin was in Abram's day and how people in those days dealt with their different problems. But I think we can take um, a, a great lesson from Abram here, who instead of shutting out the problems, actually brings them to God. And he opens himself up to what God has to say in answer to each of these problems. And in God's response, we can see this morning to ourselves as well, we see a wonderful answer. A wonderful answer how we can 
conquer our own doubts and fear. I want to spoke a little bit now on how God responded. I should say Abram on there, and not uh, how God responded to God. And the first thing to note, actually, as a small aside here, is that God's response is overwhelmingly one of reassurance, not one of chastisement. Now, this has not always been the case in the Bible. There have been times in the past when people have questioned God and actually they've been chastised for this. One clear example is Zechariah, who we read about in Luke chapter 1 and verse 20, who was struck dumb when he mocked and doubted the possibility that his wife Elizabeth would become pregnant and would give birth to the person we eventually know as John the Baptist. In this case, he was rebuked by God. And yet Abram is overwhelmingly reassured here by all of his doubts. And I think that the key thing to note here is the difference in the attitude of the two men. Overall, Abram believes in God, but he's not quite sure, doesn't quite understand how things are going to be fulfilled. His attitude is less one of denying God and more one of, Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. There's a small warning, I think, for each one of us here. There's a distinction between us rejecting God altogether and not believing Him and us trusting in God, believing in Him, but having not quite formulated everything in our minds, not quite understanding exactly what God means. C.S. Lewis is a a good example of this, who, who was a great man of faith, but he often has referred to himself as the world's most reluctant Christian. He talks how he felt he was, he was dragged into the Christian faith, kicking and screaming. And yet he believed in God, despite the fact that he spent the rest of his life searching for the answers and helping others to, to find the correct answers. Let's we'll look a little bit about how God responds to Abram's doubts and fears. First of all, we see in verse 1, that God reassures Abram. He says to Abram, Do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Well, a shield, as we know, is a barrier between us that we use to defend ourselves from enemies who are attacking us. The thing about human shields is they can only defend from one side, depending on the side which you're facing your enemy. It's quite different with God, though. God is a shield, the shield who protects us from all sides, who envelops us, who protects us from attacks from whatever direction that they might be coming in. And God says to Abram, reassures him, do not be afraid, I am your shield. And it's interesting that after this reassurance come, we never again actually see Abram in fear of being attacked by his enemies. And these words obviously repeated time and time again throughout the New Testament. How many times did Jesus say to his disciples, do not be afraid? Read in Hebrews 13, verses 5 to 6 as well, a great encouragement. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is a promise we need to hold on to. A promise particularly when we're frightened of of, of those who might uh, attack us or frightened that we can't actually go on. A promise that never will God forsake us. More than a shield, however, 
God promises in uh, the same verse, in verse 1, to be Abram's great reward. Remember, Abram was afraid that he'd given up all these possessions that he could have taken from the king of Sodom, and he must have been wondering if he'd done the right thing. And yet God said to him, I am your great reward. I don't know if any of you had the chance last night to uh, watch the program on Channel 4 called The New Ten Commandments. I caught snippets of it between trying to put the final touches together um, for the serve, and it serves nicely as an illustration at this point. In the program, the idea was that people were asked to see if they could remember what the Ten Commandments, the original Ten Commandments given to Moses and given to the people in the Bible were. And very few of them could actually name the Ten Commandments. And certainly none of the Ten Commandments relating to, to the sovereignty of God. In fact, the program makers decided to reject seven of the Ten Commandments as no longer relevant to our society and instead ask people to promote their own new Ten Commandments by which we can live. Now, I was pleasantly surprised actually to see that most of the new Ten Commandments were very noble things. New Commandments include things like care for your family, protect the environment, ensure you love others is an important one as well. But there's one key thing missing from all the new Ten Commandments. There was no mention whatsoever of God in them. See, no matter how nobly we try to live our lives, there can be absolutely no substitution for relying on God for full, true fulfilment. And ultimately, for each of us who believes, our great reward is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. God is our reward. God is our shield. Now it's rather ironic actually in this passage that it was probably God reminding Abraham that he was his reward that actually led to Abram then having the further doubts over where's my son and where's this lamb that's yet to come. And we see again God responds in a reassuring way to Abraham and tells him that all things will come to be as he said it. God promises that he would provide not just an heir, but that he'd go further than that, and that he would provide numerous descendants. A while back there was an advert on TV where a teenager was given a set of keys by his parents who tell him to go outside and there's a surprise waiting for him. And off the teenager goes, hopefully there'll be some flash new sports car waiting for him there, and instead when he gets out to his surprise, he sees a Harrier jump jet waiting for him to take and to fly off. I can't remember what the logo was, but it's something along the lines of get more than you bargained for. Abram was lonely. Abram was worried because he had no heir. And in the intimacy of the night, he poured his heart out to God, as we see in verses 4 and 5. He asked God, in verse 3 as well, he asked God, you've given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. But God reassures him. God takes him outside and he shows him the complete stretch of the heavens with all the stars up above. And any of you who've travelled uh, into sort of the, the more isolated outback areas of the continents, particularly places like the African savannah, will know what it's like to see from one horizon to the next horizon the stars stretched out like a big canopy, millions of them stretched before your eyes. God leads Abram into the quiet oriental night and he tells him, to behold the heaven. God says, look, in verse 5, 
Look up into the heavens and count the stars. If indeed, he challenges Abraham, if indeed you can count them, for so shall be your offspring. See, all Abraham asks for is will he have a son? Will he have an heir? And yet God, in his outpouring of grace and his, in his astounding generosity, gives him more than that. He says you will have so many descendants that you can't even count them. And there's something quite interesting to note actually about this, this short passage here. And that's this. The last time that God spoke to Abram about his descendants, he said they'd be as numerous as the dust of the earth. This time, God says the, the descendants will be as numerous as the stars in heaven. And many commentators have led us to believe that there would be two lines of descendants, which we now know, looking back on what's been said in the New Testament. There would be the descendants, like the dust, who would be um, the genuine descendants of Abram, the physical descendants of Abram. And then there would be the heavenly descendants, those who follow Jesus Christ, those spiritual descendants of Abram in years to come. And it's little wondering at this stage that we now come to perhaps the most profound statement in, in, in the Old Testament. Perhaps the most amazing thing that happened in Abram's life in verse 6. With such an outpouring on Abram, Abram responds to God. And it says in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited to him as righteousness. God's ultimate response to Abram is to actually make him righteous. Abram trusted in God. The promises aren't going to be fulfilled for ages yet. There's going to be another six chapters, another 25 years before we actually see the son being born. But Abram believed despite that and God made him righteous. Now you might be wondering what that means and you can take whatever New Testament jargon you like to fit into that place. Abram at that point was saved. He was washed, he was cleansed, he was justified. Abram was made right in God's eye, eyes by God. And the reason this is such a staggering truth, even though it's a very familiar one to us, is that this happened long before, 430 years in fact, long before the law came, by which people tried to live their lives, long before the circumcision covenant that took place between, between God and Abram. This happens purely between God and Abram. Abram trusted in God and God, through his grace, made him righteous, made him right. And that's an incredible encouragement for every one of us this morning who's tr struggling to trust that we can't actually match up to being good enough for God. You're quite right. There is actually nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God. In the same way as there was nothing that Abram could do to make himself right with God. No amount of good deeds, no amount of ceremonies, including the ceremony of baptism that, that, that you might have been through, will make you righteous. There's only one thing that you can possibly do, and that's to come to God like Abram did. Coming with your doubts, coming with your imperfect faith, and just believing in him. Again, if you're going to study this in house groups, I would suggest you take the time to look at Romans 4 and Galatians 3, where Paul um, uses this foundation teaching to actually explain that what happened to Abram is what happens to the believer when he trusts in Jesus. As he writes in chapter 4, verse 23, that this verse, verse 6 of chapter 15 of Genesis, 
was not just written for Abram, but for all of us today, to whom God will credit righteousness for those who believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. There's one more promise that Abram asked God about. And one more thing that God... This is the later part of the chapter which we didn't read together, but we'll look at now, where Abram asked if God would, in fact, fulfill all the promises. And this is to do with the promise of the land. Later on in this passage, we find that um, Abram begins to enter into into a a more ceremonial phase of the vision. And in this vision, he asks God whether he will take possession of the land. And God actually asks him to pause at this point and to say, wait, my timings are not your timings. I will do things in my own time and for the fulfillment of my own glory. You see, despite the fact that Abram thinks he'll possess the land, God tells him in verse um, 15, I think it is, if we can just look at that, In verses 14 and 15, God talks to him about the fact that he would not inherit the land. And in fact, it would be another 400 years before the people of Israel inherit the land. Now, Abram must have wondered why this was the case. But I want you to remember, a promise delayed is not a promise denied. God still intended to fulfill the promises. And the reason he had to allow those 400 years to take place was because the wickedness of the Amorites who were possessing the land at that time had not yet reached its full extent. God wanted to give the people a chance to repent. But he also wanted it to be clear that when he came back, when he sent his people into the promised land to attack it, and that they killed the people who were sinning against God, that this would be a clear sign of God's righteousness rather than God's revenge. That this was a sign that God with a just God. And so Abram is reassured finally that all the promises would come to pass. He would receive a son, he would receive a multitude of descendants, and eventually he would possess the land. Now some of us might still be feeling that it's difficult to trust God. And I want us in ending to look finally at the covenant that God made with Abram. I'm going to read through the verses first of all because we've not had a chance to read them yet. And then we're going to quickly go through and see what they mean. If we could have a look please at chapter 15 and verse 12. As the sun is setting we read, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved for and ill-treated for four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And here's the important bit, verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier or fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed 
between the pieces. Now the pieces it's talking about there actually refers back to, um, to verse 9 and 10. where The Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Towards the end of chapter 15, a solemn ceremony takes place where God enters into a covenant with Abram. Now we don't know why these particular animals were chosen. We don't know why Abram was told to take the rams and the heifers and to, and to, divide, and to, uh, and, and to divide them up. But we do know the reason why this was done. You see, in the Old Testament, when an agreement or a covenant was made between two parties, they would take animals, they would cut them in half, they would separate them, and then the two parties would walk down the middle between the two lots of, of, of half animals. And what they were doing was swearing an oath that if either of them was to break the covenant, to break the agreement, then they would have to be cut in half themselves. That they would have to be killed. Abram fulfills the first part of the covenant. He brings the animals and he cuts them in half. And then the sun begins to set and Abram, in verse 12, falls into a dark and dreadful sleep. We don't know why this is the case. Perhaps Abram at this stage became aware of the holiness of God in contrast to sin. And then in verse 17, the amazing thing happens. A smoking firepot and a blazing torch pass between the middle of the two half pieces. Now, just like the fire in the, in the desert, the burning cloud in the desert that guided the people of Israel, this firepot represents the presence of God. But note, it is only God who passes through the pieces. Abram plays no role whatsoever in making the covenant. He plays no role in keeping its promises. It's God alone here who makes the promises. God who takes upon himself the task of fulfilling the obligations of both sides. And it's God alone who sets himself as a guarantee, even to death, if the promises are not kept. I'm at a stage in life at the minute where I'm beginning to think of such weighty things as mortgages, which I've never quite understood. My wife is slowly teaching me what it's all about. But apparently, the bank lends you some money, and in return, you promise to pay back so much in interest. Now, failure to pay back, obviously, results in certain penalties being put on you. Higher interest loans, the loss of your property, or even a bad credit rating. And in this example, God, so to speak, not only agrees to give Abram the loan, not actually agrees to give the things out, he also agrees to pay back the monthly payments and to suffer the penalties if they are not being made. This is not just amazing grace in this part, this is absolutely outstanding grace. From the beginning to end, it's a covenant of grace where God makes the promises, God gives the guarantee, and God says that he will take the punishment upon himself if the covenant is broken, if he's unable to fulfill his promises. Well, ultimately, we do see this full significance of this ceremony in the New Testament. We fully understand this when the New Testament comes and we see that it is Christ, that is Christ, 
who is involved in the covenant of grace at this stage. This is where it reaches its full expression. In Christ, God keeps the covenant promises and he suffers the covenant penalties as he's crucified and as he dies in our place. I asked you at the beginning of this sermon what sort of fears, what sort of doubts prevent you from fully understanding and believing God's promises. Well, hopefully through the passage there are a number of answers that we can gain from this. That God has promised to be our reward, our great shield. That God has promised in his time he will fulfill his promises. But whatever doubts may linger, if there's one thing we can take away from today, it's an understanding of the outpouring of God's wonderful gift of grace. We can rejoice in the fact that God kept his covenant with his people and by his grace, anyone can receive the promise and the gift of eternal life. And that if we come to God in our imperfect faith, it is God through his grace and nothing that we can do of our own accord that makes us righteous with God. God doesn't require that we're perfect. He doesn't require that we fully understand. But he does ask of us that we believe and allow him to complete the work in us. In a minute or two after we've prayed, we're going to sing. And as we sing, we're going to focus on the words, in Christ alone. It is in Christ alone and nothing else this world can provide. In Christ alone that we can find our hope. I pray that will be your prayer today as you leave.